1: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Equalizer podcast. My name is Rachel Crater, I'm gonna be your host today. And I have joined with me, Jeff Kasouf, our fearless leader over at Equalizer. How you doing today?
1: I think that's a generous intro, but I'll take it.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I kind of ripped it off um, an old podcast I used to do. One of my ah. friends would always say that, and it's, it's fitting. So it's not – I wouldn't say it's generous. I think it's fitting. <laughs> I <right>, appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well, it's been a week when it comes to news. Um, it, it's been a lot of exciting news, so that's good. So we're just gonna, we're gonna dive right into it, folks. Um, so pretty, pretty late on, um, on Friday night, we found out some news about a former U.S. women's national team coach, that U.S. women's national team coach being Jill Ellis. She, according to The Athletic, is being hired in some sort of role for the uh, Sacramento club, but not just the NWSL team, but also there's, um, it was reported that she's going to have some, you know, responsibility with the upcoming MLS club. Um, The NWSL team, excuse me, is supposed to begin play. It was confirmed a couple weeks ago by Lisa Baird um, in 2022. So they're coming in the same time as Angel City. Um, and then the MLS club is going to be in, uh, in 2023. Um, so Jeff, uh, just kind of, I guess, walk me and everybody else through what, what, you know, what you think is, is going on here and why this makes sense.
1: Yeah. So in vague terms, I guess, or in general terms, a technical director type of, of role, um, soccer operations, technical side of things for Jill Ellis. And this was, um, you know, hat tip to the athletic on reporting. I think it was uh, kind of started circulating recently, um, you know, behind the scenes and and I think in that report said that Ellis has already been on some board meeting calls, so that's about as official as you can get. Um, And Sacramento has been on those calls certainly for a few months now. But, um, you know, the the involvement on both sides I think is is very interesting because if you followed along and and credit to her, you know, Ellis has been asked a lot about – would you coach in MLS? Would you coach on the men's side? And she's always responded with that. I think rightfully saying, you know, kind of challenging the idea that that's a step up. And I I think, you know, with respect to MLS, it's obviously a different type of challenge, but, you know, even some of the bigger clubs in MLS, you know, to say it's a step up from the U S women's national team winning two world cups, you know, I don't know if there is necessarily a step up, so it's always going to be, probably a case of, is there a different challenge, maybe more of a a lateral move into a different type of space. And this would be one, it's not a head coaching role. It's more of a, a managerial type of role. I, I don't know if it doesn't sound like so much general manager, as much as giving direction to the soccer side of things, which I think is certainly, you know, proved to be a strong suit of hers in terms of, you know, player management, um, You know, I know there was plenty of, you know, reports through the years and and different things since in terms of, you know, different players and how they interacted with her. But I think certainly from a, you know, you have to say objectively, winning the two World Cups, dealing with personalities, egos, top players in the world that (laughs) I, I said this, I think I said this to John Halloran on one of our podcasts months ago even, that there's always going to be, I don't care who you are, what team, what coach, players that are unhappy on any given team. It's about managing that. And I think regardless of the criticisms, you can say it was managed successfully to to win two world cups. So, you know, from that perspective of building out the soccer side, helping build the rosters of these teams and doing it in a capacity where you are starting from scratch, essentially the men's side, obviously has a USL team, that's, you know, moving up to whatever degree um, indirectly, I guess you could say, but, starting from scratch in that sense on the men's and women's side is something that is a pretty unique opportunity. And I think when you look at what she has said about what she wants to do next, um, you know, not, not following through to go to another national team job, whether that was the England job, the Australia job. Um, and some of these reports about DC United, which I don't think ever got very far along, but again, that's a club that's just MLS doesn't have the the women's tie-in. So I think in that perspective, when you think about, okay, you know, look at her answers of what she would do next, look at the opportunities that exist in the world, okay, another national team, or is it a club situation that feels like some kind of a downgrade? I think this is that sort of unique opportunity that um, came along that was enticing to her, and and we'll see, you know, we still need a lot of details, obviously, but I think that it's an interesting, you know, an interesting fit for her and an interesting fit for um the club itself as it builds out on the men's and women's side. I I mean, I'm interested. I'm excited. You know, I think it's, it's cool to see there needs to be more women coaches, more women GMs. And this is by the sounds of it, sort of the top of the soccer pyramid at the club.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the DC United thing because I was, I was going to, you know, speak to that as well. You know, she was involved in that conversation. Obviously it didn't, Um, happened. They hired uh, Hernan Lozada. um, Instead, she was kind of in the in the mix of, you know, names that people were um, not people, I guess, you know, DC United was looking at. Um, But something that kind of popped out to me um, on the article from Meg Linehan and Jeff Reuter, um, I hope I said your last name right, Jeff, um, was that, you know, Jill Ellis has already been representing the team on board calls with the NWSL and like other different league matters. So I think what I'm excited to see, well, maybe not really see because a lot of this stuff happens, you know, I guess behind closed doors is a good way to say it. Um, kind of the relationship between what, how Jill Ellis is going to work with Lisa Baird, um, something like that. Um, Cause I think that mm. those are two, you know, Jill Ellis is obviously very accomplished and, Lisa Baird has really, I don't want to say resurrected the NWSL because it wasn't dead, but she's revived is a good word, I guess. She's really revived it into something um, really great. She's she's put in a lot of work and has done a lot of good for the league. Um, So I think that, you know, these two big names being involved in some capacity with the nwsl is very cool and as somebody who covers mls i think it's very exciting to see someone um as notable and as strong-willed and passionate about just the game of soccer not even just women's soccer but the game of soccer coming to help out with an an mls club um Mm -hmm. so i think i think it's cool um so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm excited yeah. to see how it works.
1: I think there's a couple of things, too, that we should mention. The Sacramento news itself remains mysterious. Uh, I don't have an explanation for that. It's been that way for months. Even this sort of quote-unquote official confirmation, which I think we've talked about in these past weeks, but you know, Lisa Baird kind of drops on the call that it's 2022. We have a date that they're going to be involved in an expansion draft now. But they still have not confirmed anything sort of locally. They issued a statement when I reached out to them. Um, but they have not held sort of the typical pomp and circumstance event when they when a team announces itself as expansion. Mm-hmm. So that I find that a little bit curious. But that's kind of a, an aside. I think to, to Ellis herself, um, I, I would stress a couple things that, that quickly. That um, one is I've written this and I've talked to her on our kick and back pod. She did that pro license um, U.S soccer pro license was the first woman to do it. And by many accounts, objective accounts that were there in the in the room had sort of the most impression impressive um, presentation among coaches. And, you know, among these peers of uh, Jesse Marsh, for example, who's probably, you know, ascended to maybe one of the, the most recognizable American coaches on the men's side, you know, mm-hmm. among all these peers had extremely impressive coaching ideas that these, at this pro license course. So I think that's worth reiterating and noting again, when you talk about, you know, someone where you know, soccer is soccer and being involved on the men's and women's side. And I, you know, really quickly too, I wanted to raise the point because I think it, it relates here. Um, I wrote this a couple of years back already. I'd spoken with Anson Dorrance for the book that I was co-writing with our friend, Kieran. And uh, he, he talked to me about this idea that he had, which I think the the application of it, you could say, is a little bit extreme. But um, in practice, I think it's really interesting. We're seeing it a little bit here with Ellis. Um, He has an idea in which a national team coach, a U.S. national team coach, should be hired for one four-year cycle. You don't fire them before they get through it. You don't extend it because I I think we've seen through history that extending that, no matter where you are, uh, you can ask Germany as an example of of how that goes. And – in that contract, and part of that deal is they have an option to then be involved in the NWSL after they're a national team coach, and it's, it's sort of an option, a retainer of sorts, and it keeps them involved in the women's game so they're not lost, is kind of how he had put it to me. And I, I think you can nitpick on the execution of that, how it would look, but the concept of it, of keeping a national team coach who won two World Cups with the United States, in the American game, in the pro league, which is going to then produce future players, I think is a really interesting concept. And while it's not a coaching role, we're seeing Jill Ellis now involved in the NWSL, which I think has continued long-term effects, obviously, on the game here.
0: Co-sign all of that because you know what you're talking about on this front, for sure. Um, to switch gears that's not a great transition, but we're just going to switch gears. Um, some big news was announced this week that Naomi Osaka, the tennis legend already at such a young age, she is a three-time grand slam champion. She just won, um, the, the U S open again in 2020. Uh, she has joined the investors, the ownership group, um, whatever you want to call it, of the North Carolina Courage. Um, It kind of, I know for me, it kind of just came out of the blue. It wasn't a piece of news that I expected to hear, but it was the best unexpected news that I wanted to hear because she is obviously great. She is very inspiring, and she is getting behind fellow women athletes, which is, you know, it's always a good thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talk about Angel City FC coming in, first majority women-owned team in the league, obviously the top flight of women's soccer in the country, and and that's obviously important, came in with a a mission to kind of change the landscape and change the ownership landscape, among other things, and before they kick a ball, you have Kansas City now, majority women-owned, and that being um, as I wrote for our subscribers on com recently, that, you know, that being a direct connection to L.A., that was Angie Long. Chris Long went to Princeton with with Karen Nortman and, um, you know, called called her up as they, they had already been kind of poking around. But that accelerated that and made Kansas City happen as Utah needed a solution. And, you know, I think uh, Osaka had kind of, referenced seeing Angel City come in seeing what momentum the league had that being part of it and wanting to get involved and maybe the connection there is not as direct and I'm not going to give LA every credit for doing this but I think you should tip the cap to the idea that again you know this is um something that's you know could be attributed there and and is part of this sort of wave the the rising tide and it's not going to be the last one. I mean, we had, we, I don't think we've even really talked much about uh, the changes to Washington spirit ownership on this podcast. You know, another um, important woman added to the boardroom, the ownership group uh, for a team and, and, you know, not the last either. So, you know, I think an important one, obviously high profile one, you know, a tennis star, quite the crossover in sports. And um, I would say too, Rachel, I think important for that team, because that's the first new investor for Steve Malik since the team moved there from Western New York. And, you know, they've had a lot of changes. North Carolina FC is moving down in the league. They're trying to get that stadium built downtown. They've had a lot of operational costs. So, you know, I think important in that sense too, for that club specifically.
0: So my question is, and whether this is rhetorical or you want to take a stab at it, go for it. Um, what role does she have? For me, I think it's like, you know, she's not going to take over and be like, here, we're going to do this, 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 and this. Um, because, you know, she has she has her own tennis career to think about. So she's going to obviously keep a focus on that as well as, you know, be an investor but and support the team. But is she more like... Do you market her as much as you market the players? You know, like I'm trying to figure out what's what's the act like the active role, I guess. Yeah, I don't think
1: you market her as much as you market the players, but you certainly, I mean, I said this from the video they released. The branding has stepped up already, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, with with respect to the courage, I mean, I don't think the courage would necessarily have been a team that you know their digital branding, their marketing. You've been like, whoa, you know, just take a step back. I think there's been other leaders in the league in that sense, but the the Osaka announcement video was the quality and cadence and style of, you know, one of those good Nike commercials. I, I think I saw somebody compare it to that and it was, it was spot on. Um, so I, I think you have a branding element in so many words. And I think guidance is probably the word where you're right. She has a still very young career in her own sport, but, you know I would expect her to be involved in in a guidance standpoint um, in some decision making of um, different things I mean the, the one note at the end of the press release from the Courage was that the first thing that they 've specifically said is she'll be design she 'll be involved in design decisions mm-hmm. which um, is minor in a sense but is maybe an area of expertise for her as part of the branding and again you know you 've got the probably the You know, if you said, what's an NWSL dynasty, you're thinking courage of, you know, 18, 19, 17, 18, 19, you know, stretching those flash days maybe as the start. And the branding hasn't matched, even from, like, the stock jerseys they've typically worn. So, you know, I think if we're talking little things that could go a long way, there you have it with, you're seeing it tangibly with the video, maybe the design stuff. Are those minor? Yes. But... I think you can kind of intangibly say momentum as well. Again, a team looking to get a stadium built to to kind of really put a foothold in a market uh, where they've done it on the field, but maybe need a little bit of a kick in the butt off the field too. Um, I think this could go a long way in terms of notoriety.
0: Agreed on all fronts. I think it's definitely a good look for the league to have these notable and, you know, great women coming in and having some kind of say at the table, if you will. Um, unless you have anything else to add there, Jeff, I think that'll do it for us for segment one. We will be back in segment two. We're going to talk some more news um, about the NWSL schedule, um, some injuries and a little bit of an update to the SheBelieves Cup, which is coming up. Uh, next month. So, well, I should say in February. Uh, So we'll be back for segment two.
1: Hey everyone. Thank you for listening to the equalizer podcast. We'll be right back to that in a minute, but just want to make sure that you're aware of our other podcast from the Equalizer Network, Kicking Back. It's one that I host, and each week we talk to personalities from across the sport of women's soccer, coaches, players, executives, plenty of great guests throughout season one from U.S. coaches, Vlatko Ananovsky, Jill Ellis, to players like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn. NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird, so many great guests, and we're coming up on season two pretty soon, and you are not going to want to miss what we have in store for you. So go ahead and check out Kicking Back. If you're listening on a podcast platform right now, you can find us there as well. We're on all the podcast platforms, and we're looking forward to another exciting season of really in-depth interviews and fun interviews with our latest guests. That's it for me, and let's get you back to the Equalizer podcast.
0: Welcome back to the Equalizer Podcast. A reminder to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. It it helps make it more accessible to listeners and uh, your support obviously means the world to us. Remember to subscribe to the Equalizer to get, um, you know, the extra scoops that Jeff has been doing, um, and to get great content all across the board. So that's um, equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. Um, and remember, we're on social media. Uh, so check us out there as well. Um, so we're back for segment two, segment one, we talked a lot about um, news. So we're going to keep rolling on that, um, on that train. And we've got more news to talk about what we, we want to first mention that the NWSL timeline schedule has dropped. No, this is not the schedule schedule. So these are the key dates for the NWSL um, for the upcoming 2021 season. Preseason is starting on February 1st. Um, There is going to be an NWSL Challenge Cup again. This time it is going to be played in home markets uh, starting in April and then Afterwards, there's going to be a 24-game regular season beginning on May 15th. Um, there is no Olympic break, so that's pretty notable, and we'll talk about that. Uh, the regular season will conclude on October 30th, and then – They go right into the playoffs and the um, NWSL championship is slated for a November 20th, 2021 date. And then at the end of all of it, you know, we talked about Jill Ellis being with Sacramento. um, And so to tie it in the expansion draft for Sacramento and angel city FC will be on December 16th. So a lot of different dates thrown at you. um, But let's just kind of break it down. I think the biggest thing, Jeff, is that there is no Olympic break this year.
1: Yeah, I think that'll be a headline, but I also would say, you know, the quote-unquote breaks in the past have really kind of been a joke, so to speak, because it's they've been called 12-day breaks or two-week breaks, and what it's really meant is the league took one full weekend off for, you know, a five-week World Cup, basically. So it's not a huge change in that sense. Add in the fact that, we still aren't really sure exactly what's happening with the Olympics. So you might build in a break that you don't end up needing. I don't know if necessarily at that point, but it's, it's a possibility. And you probably need as much time as you can, because I think we've seen from leagues, you know, the the NWCL executed the bubble well at the challenge cup, the fall series pretty well in in home markets, but those were pretty limited number of games in the fall series for each, obviously, And the, you know, we're seeing from the NFL has had scheduling nightmares. The NBA is dealing with stuff, basically every league that has come back, uh, premier league, the the women's super league has dealt with a lot of late. So I I think if you're Lisa Baird, if you're the owners, you know, as well as you plan anything, you're going to have some postponements. You're going to need to work around some schedule changes, whether that's quarantines or otherwise. So I think no break means you just have a little bit more wiggle room there. And the Olympics are a short tournament, compact anyway. The breaks have always been sort of a farce, as I said. So I don't know if it's huge news that there's no break. I like that they avoid the international breaks around the playoffs. Um, I, I just Fishlock tweeted when I was tweeting the schedule that the challenge cup starts right in an international window. So that's not ideal, but I think it's kind of par for the course on NWSL and international breaks um, through the years. So at least it's avoided at the back end would be my, my thought as far as the playoffs go.
0: I think one of the things that is most notable on this schedule too, is that yes, the challenge cup is back, but it is being played in home markets. How do you think the outline of this is going to look in terms of, you know, I mean, the, the group stage games are one thing. But at the same time, it's like okay. So if you have, if you have a group, right, and you're playing, I don't, I don't know how this would work. How do you decide who's home and who's away?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think the original plan for this, and we've we've been given no real official updates other than it will be in home markets, or at least again, is the plan, as of now. Um, the original plan for this was two groups. Group winners go straight to a championship, which gets you through that condensed timeline without having to, uh, well, again, if it's in all markets, it's a lot harder to to kind of pack these games in than it is in one spot. And it kind of limits the amount of uh, uncertainties, I guess, that you're not adding, you know, a quarterfinal and a semifinal. So if that's still the plan, I think that helps mitigate, you know, I would say load management as well as some of these travel concerns to some degree, but how you decide who's, Home is a great question. I mean, I think it's probably just a matter of making sure that the number of home games are even. And, you know, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that against one team, you're on the road, against one team, you're at home. I think that's the only way you can do it in a one-month sort of round-robin schedule.
0: Yeah, and so for the regular season, 24 games included with you know, adding on to the games from that are going to be played in the challenge cup. Do you think that's ambitious? Do you think that's right on par? Do you think like, okay, maybe it should be taken down a couple.
1: I think that's good. I think that's what we've been at and there's no reason to change it, especially because the season runs later. I don't want to say longer because it's starting later, but the season is, I mean, the season is longer when you add in the challenge cup. And that's why us Federation players are getting paid more this year significantly more than was in the CBA. So, you know, I think 24 games is right. I think it's right for, um, you know, building toward the future. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about long-term on the show and Lisa Baird has been talking about a 10-year plan. I've seen people talk about divisions potentially going forward. We'll be at 12 teams in 2022. And, you know, I, I don't like that. I, I'd like to see setting the league up for, a single table, a consistent schedule. So 24 games, I think they're about, is right. And it's something you can keep in the ballpark of going forward where, an example, you're at 12 teams. You can play home and away, 11 each. It's a 22-game schedule. You know, you get to 14 teams at some point, hopefully, maybe. And you've got 13 home and away. It's a 26-game schedule. That's To me, that's the way to do it. And it's the right number, especially when you consider – it's very clear that there are ambitions to do some sort of additional programming. We're seeing, you know, we knew about the ICC. Now we have an IWC with some, a couple of NWSL teams. So there's an ambition to do these international games. There are people who want to see things like a challenge cup every year, the more ambitious one being the open cup. So I think that that is the right amount of games to also leave yourself some leeway for these other competitions. And again, you want to set up this plan. Lisa Baird talking about a 10-year plan, a six-team playoff field. You can keep that for the foreseeable future with 12, 14 teams. And that's still the right number. It might even be too much right now. The 24-game schedule, say 22 to 26 games anyway, you can keep a single-table format, home and away scheduling in that sense. And there's a consistency there that people are used to. So I'd like to see that rather than starting to talk about three divisions of four teams or something, MLS did that, then they shifted to, you know, two much bigger conferences, but that's kind of how I'd like to see it. And I think this potentially sets you up to continue to do that. And it's consistently been in the 24 game, you know, uh, area for a while now. So I I think you stick with that.
0: And in addition by the way, to the um, the dates being released, the NWSL op- um, updated their COVID nineteen protocols and and just you know for you know game days and for trainings and for off the field stuff. Um, so that's available on the league's website. Something that um, is in there is the opt out policy, um, and they updated that. Um, so just quickly. Reading from this, it says, you know, a player on medical opt-out will continue to receive uh, full compensation and benefits. However, um, players that are opting out without the, the medical opt-out, um, there's a bit of a process for that. Um, and if, you know, if it gets approved for a medical, then, you know, they'll get their benefits and all that stuff. If it doesn't, then they don't. So that's something to look out for um, as well in the new COVID. Um, I shouldn't say new. I guess I should say updated COVID nineteen protocols. Um, so all of those dates are um, are in the, are on the league's website. Um, all of the protocols as well. So definitely take a look at those. Um, again, kind of just switching gears here. We. Got some injury news about a certain U.S. Women's National Team player, that player being Tobin Heath over at Manchester United in the FA WSL. She is out for 10 to 12 weeks with an ankle injury. Um, If there is an Olympics that could have some sort of, um, you know, impact on it, she, of course, she is going to be out for the upcoming um, she believes cup. So, you know, Jeff, any, any thoughts there?
1: Well, it's a pretty significant injury, 10 to 12 weeks, you know, on an ankle, um, you know, potentially an even bigger effect on Manchester United, I'd say than the U S women, because I do think she's a player who, you know, has been on this team long enough, is talented enough, obviously to step back in. I mean, that's, that timeline would put her back at mid April. If that timeline stays accurate and, um, you know, I think mid-April, assuming still that the Olympics are go in mid-July, there's time there to work back in to, you know, the U.S. scene. So I'm not super concerned about her Olympic fate at the moment. It is, as we've talked about and written about, you know, a very crowded forward pool. But, you know, she's somebody that's not going to suddenly disappear because of an ankle injury that keeps her out a couple months. You know what she can do. I think she's an automatic, assuming she's not – so unhealthy that she can't play at all. So, um, not super concerned there, but if you're Manchester United in a title race, that's a big piece missing for several months for you. So I I think that's probably the biggest concern there.
0: Yeah. So like I said, she'll be out for the upcoming, she believes cup. So just, you know, going right along with that news this week that Japan had decided to withdraw from the tournament, um, due to some concerns around, you know, COVID-19 and just travel and, you know, all kinds of stuff there. Um, and in place of Japan, now Argentina is in the tournament. And honest, honestly, Jeff, I did not realize it until like I was making the, the little graphic for equalizer. And I was like, Oh my gosh, Brazil and Argentina are going to play. That's awesome. Like I, it, Judge me if you must, but I am more excited for the Brazil-Argentina game than I am for any U.S. soccer game or, or Canada or for USA and Canada. Like Brazil and Argentina is going to be so cool to watch. Like we don't usually get to watch that um just because, you know, it's you know, women's international soccer, isn't always the most easiest thing to watch. So to be able to actually watch that game is going to be so cool. And I'm so excited for that.
1: Well, I love the enthusiasm. I think it could be a pretty lopsided one based on how these two teams are coming in, which is, you know, Argentina has been dormant for a year plus and Brazil um, has been, been quite good quite a while now um, under Pia Sinhaga. So I think, you know, it it might not be as exciting of a game as as you're going to want. I actually am most looking forward to USA-Brazil because it'll be Pia's first time against, uh, you know, against the U.S. there. Um, Sorry, not first time. First time in a while against the U.S. uh, First time with Brazil against the U.S., and I think that's obviously intriguing. Um, But, uh, you know, the Japan pulling out news, um, I can't help but look at and say, Japan is pulling out of this friendly tournament because of the situation with COVID-19 in their country, which by the way, is hosting the Olympics. So, um, you know, it's not directly tied to the uh, news of the past week to 10 days of Olympics won't happen. IOC denies it, but you know, you look at something like that and I don't know, it's, it's tough to have a ton of confidence in, in Tokyo, 2020 slash 2021 happening, but. Um, yeah, unfortunately for the She Believes Cup, but I think you could certainly make the argument of why is it even happening. But it's it's a whole another tangent.
0: You're yeah, you're right. I mean, it is going to be good competition for Argentina um, to kind of test themselves. But at the same time, you know, there's a little bit of um, you know controversy around them as well. A couple of players had spoken out. Um, a, a notable name being Estefania Benini. She and a couple others spoke out about the federation and the um, unequal treatment, um, and have kind of been shunned from the national team. So looking, waiting to see their roster, I think is going to be pretty, pretty important, pretty key. Um, but you know, moving from that, now we we also got some other, you know, for me out of the blue news when the NISA and the UWS, lot of acronyms here. So if I mess anything up, feel free to correct me. Um, they are partnering to make a pro second division for women. This comes after, you know, the, there's been that news that the USL is going to create their own, you know, second division of sorts. So Jeff, this is all you walk, walk me through all of this.
1: Well, it's intriguing. I mean, I'm curious to see how this develops, what the, you know, which clubs will be involved, but I said this, you know, it's over a year ago now that we heard about the USL potentially wanting to get back into the women's game. The way the W League was shuttered was not great. So I don't think that, you know, I think that left a bad taste in, in many people's mouths. So to hear that and then the the initial reports were direct competition with the NWSL, which was, um, I would say the very brief version, because I don't think at this stage we need the, you know, the extended version, but, there were a lot of politics involved in that, I would say, that the actual sort of leaking of the idea of a pro league at a time when U.S. soccer was transitioning away from managing the NWSL, but the NWSL is still benefiting financially from U.S. soccer. A lot of politics involved in that, and you know, recently the report now being that USL wants to create a pro-am league, which already exists to the tune of WPSL to over 100 clubs across the country – UWS to dozens of clubs across the country. So there is not a need for another pro-am league. There is a need for the huge gap that exists from the NWSL where you have to get paid and now increasingly get paid year round with year round benefits to a WPSL UWS, which is, you know, essentially it's pro-am, but I mean, there's no financial, there's really no financial compensation in broad terms there. So, There's a huge gap between that. So the idea that NISA and UWS are partnering to fill that void, I'm going to say probably the timing is not coincidental that it's right after the the USL report resurfaced, uh, but it's something they have been working on for a while. And there was a void there. Can you make it work financially is going to be a huge question. I don't know, but certainly from a player perspective, if we're talking, let's call it maybe 15 and below on a given NWSL teams roster, not playing much, but a good player needs reps, could be a good player with more reps. You know, I I think if you have a small pro women's second division, even if that means, you know, low salaries, but still getting paid, making it work financially, that, that would fill a huge void. I, you know, how that, looks business-wise and how they take that on financially is going to be a big question, obviously.
0: I think all good points all around. Yes, we need more of a bridge than we need a larger gap for sure. Um, I will say though, if they do it and they do it right, Pittsburgh, we are home to the Riverhounds of the USL. Having women's soccer here would be great, like in terms of a second tier team, because we do have a WPSL team. Well, I I assume
1: Um, the NISA partnership means, you know, you can look to those clubs as potential involved clubs.
0: You heard it here first, Pittsburgh. Let's go. Um, So Jeff, do you have anything else to, to add to, before we really, you know, close out this, this episode of the Equalizer podcast?
1: No, I think, I think we hit on a lot of the, the news of the week. Obviously, it was a fairly newsy week, but um, hopefully gave people a little bit of context on, on all these things that they maybe heard or maybe even missed throughout the past week.
0: Yes, I, I think we hit a lot today. It was a busy news week. So, um, But before we close out the show, um, we would be remiss to not um, acknowledge down um, in Liga Emeke's Femenil, um, Santos Laguna, man, former manager Martin Perez Padron, uh passed away suddenly due to COVID nineteen implications. Uh, this happened before their week two of the Clausura. Um, they they are still playing. They have um, Jorge Campos taking over as the interim manager right now. But just you know, condolences and, and well wishes to everybody. At, at Santos and, and Martin Perez-Pardrone's family. Um, hopefully they can find some peace during this difficult time. Um, but that's going to do it for us at the Equalizer podcast. My name is Rachel Kriger for Jeff Kasouf and for our producer, Jacqueline Purdy. We will see y'all next time. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Break free from the big three. Get unlimited with 5G included for $30 a month when you get four lines on Xfinity Mobile. Prices may vary and are subject to change. Reduce speeds at 20 gigabytes per line.